So glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series called We Want a King, and this morning we've got a lot of work to do. We have uh, two chapters to cover, and I'm going to try to work through this uh, as best as I, as I know how and as best as I can, uh, but there's a lot to get through. And, and these are the next two weeks are really important in King Saul's story because we're starting to see him kind of unravel, and this is like the demise of his kingship and of his reign and of his rule. And I don't know if you like um, antiheroes and stories, so if you're like a fan of uh, Macbeth or Hamlet or Gatsby or Scarlett O'Hare or Michael Corleone, Tyler Durden, Anakin Skywalker, Walter White, anybody, you like these guys? Um, these kind of like tragic heroes. I actually get really uncomfortable around characters like that because I, I'm like, there's, that's in me. Like I, I could be like that. Uh, and I just, I don't like being confronted like that. And that's what we're going to experience, I think, the next two weeks as we are looking at these chapters of where Saul, this kind of tragic, kind of like anti-hero in the scriptures. And, and what we're going to see is we're a lot more like Saul than I think we're going to be comfortable with. And uh, as we start to unpack uh, these chapters, we're going we're gonna to see that and we're going to be confronted with that. But um, let, me, let me pray and just ask God to help us uh, before we get into our text here this morning. Father, we love you. And God, I um, am just so thankful for what you've allowed us to just experience and to sing and to confess with one another. Um, and God, that is absolutely true. Is um, God, it's, it's not us. It's not our own power. It's not our own might. It's not our own intellect. Um, it's you in us working. And Father, we're, we're just asking um, for that now. We're asking that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply your word to our hearts and to our minds, to our lives. God, your word cautions us uh, against the foolishness of being like a man who looks in the mirror and then walks away just not paying attention or forgetting even what they look like. And God, we are holding up the mirror of your word this morning. And so, God, um, the things that we need to be confronted with uh, God, would you um, give us the humility to look at those things, and God, would you, by your kindness and by your grace, God, draw us to repentance and draw us to a return to you in the places that we've wandered. Um, but we need you for that, so Holy Spirit, would you come and would you work, would you do what only you can do, Lord? Uh, and I ask these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. So if you have been out uh, and you've missed a lot of this series, uh, I want to encourage you to go back and listen and, and just kind of track with where we've been. But the, the, to bring you up to speed, the people of God um, have asked for a king. Uh, they're kind of ruled in this kind of uh, like loose kind of covenantal uh, way. And they were like, we want uh, one kind of centralized leadership 
And in chapter 8, their request says something very specific because they say, we want a king like the other nations have. God, yes, you set us apart to be a certain kind of people that live a certain way. You've made us a different kind of people. And they're essentially saying, we really don't want that anymore. We want to, we want to be like everybody else. Um, and so Samuel and, and God, they tell the people, this is a bad idea because that king will take from you. God says, I'm your king and I give to you. I'm not like the kings of earth. And they said, well, we want a king like everybody else has. So last week, um, Saul, he gets raised up as a king. They like the look of Saul. He's tall, he's handsome, the scripture says. He has a, kind of his first official kingly act, which is this military victory against the Ammonites. Um, and Saul does the right thing. He gives God the credit in that moment. It's, and it's a great moment for, for Saul but things start to kind of shift and things to start to turn. Saul, um, as the kids say, starts feeling himself. And now his kind of ego is starting to swell up and, and his insecurity is starting to come out a little bit. And it's, and it's not as if uh, these things produce that in Saul. They reveal what's already in him. Um, Hebrew scholars, they say in the Old Testament, when a character is introduced, the first thing that the, that character says gives you a window into what that character is really like, what's in them. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when we see uh, Saul, if you remember the story, Jeremy taught through this, um, they're out and they're looking for donkeys, they're looking for his father's donkeys. But listen what, listen what Saul says in 1 Samuel chapter 9. He says, come let us go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. So Saul kind of gives you a window into the kind of person that he is. There's kind of like an insecurity. There's an, he's not sure. He's worried. He's anxious. And then he, the servant says, look, before we just quit, in this town, there's a man of God. He's highly respected, and everything he says come true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. So there's two things that just get revealed here as we are introduced to Saul, and it's important that we know this kind of moving forward. It will reveal even more and more about Saul. One, there is an insecurity. He's like, ah, oh, my dad's going to get worried. We should just quit. We, let's just give up. Let's just, don't worry about the donkeys. Let's just kind of go back because something could happen to us. My dad's going to worry about us. So there, he's unsure, and then also he's uninformed. This man of God like lives in the neighborhood of where, where Saul's at, and Saul has no idea where the man of God is. So we're getting these kind of clues on the onset of Saul because being insecure and uninformed is not a good combo for a leader. And we're going to see how the pressure of circumstances in the life of Saul actually exposes this and how disobedience is Saul's response to the pressure of his circumstances. First uh, Samuel chapter 13, uh, we're going to be in chapter 13 and 14. I realize uh, Sonny read chapter 12 for us, but I, and I asked him to read that portion of Scripture. We're not going to be in chapter 12, but it kind of sets a framework as we're moving forward into 13 and 14. So ch uh, chapter 13 says this, So Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. And Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all his Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Now, that's not what it said in verse 3. 
but it's what the news goes out, that Saul had attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and they went up and camped at Michmash east of beth and when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns, in jugs. And some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Okay, so after the victory against the Ammonites, Saul gets himself an army together. He's kind of got his group. And then his son, Jonathan, has his little group. Now, Jonathan, we're going to see in chapter 14, Jonathan's a great character. Um, but he makes a move against a Philistine outpost, and he's victorious. Um, and most translations then say that the Philistines get crazy, they get ridiculously annoyed at the Israelites. In fact, uh, some translations say they've become like a foul stench to them. Um, our family spent a lot of time in the car together on kind of a road trip, and I have a fourth grade son whose principal diet is Cheetos, Sour Patch Kids, and Chicken Nuggets. And so there were a lot of moments in the car where there was an annoying stench and there was an anger in the family that kind of rose up. And I just thought like, oh, that's a picture of how the Philistines feel against the Israelites. They've been, they're just an, uh, annoying, they're pests. And so they're like, okay, we are going to rise up against these Israelites and finally deal with them. Trumpet blows and the word gets out that Saul has a victory. Saul didn't Saul didn't do anything, but he takes the credit for it. Philistines rise up in Israel in response to this massive Philistine army. After Jonathan had just had a victory at this little skirmish here, they run and they hide in every kind of like nook and cranny that's around. And there's a lesson there that they take on these aspects of their leader the leadership or really the lack of leadership of Saul is now affecting his people. So Saul in this moment is desperate because he's seeing his army scatter and he's seeing the Philistine army muster up against him. And so he has instructions from Samuel. So Samuel is the prophet, the man of God, to wait for him to show up. Samuel says, before you do anything, Saul, wait for me. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to perform a sacrifice. There's going to be an offering before the Lord. There's a moment of worship before you enter into battle. That was something that God had set up for his people. Before you go into battle, you're going to have this moment of worship, and Samuel is the one, who is the one who's going to perform the sacrifice. There's a way that God has instituted worship before war, but Saul lets worry be his worship which makes him ill-equipped for war. And that's, I think that's a whole other message that could be preached just on that. Like, God says, you worship before war. Saul lets worry be his worship, which makes him ill-equipped for war. But watch what happens. So he waits seven days, the time that was set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Samuel says. 
And Saul says, well, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled. Literally, he's saying, like, I had to do this. I was forced to do this. I had no other option, which is not true. He's like, I had no other option but to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel says, you had one job. You had one commandment. Wait for me to perform the sacrifice, to perform the, the offering. And, and if you are in this kind of story, you're starting to see something that's really going to reveal itself next week with Saul. And Saul has a pattern of partial obedience, which is full disobedience. The, the pattern of Saul is partial obedience, which is full disobedience. And Saul, he does what many of us do. This is, this is what I'm saying. Like, we need to be able to look at Saul and see the things that we do are the very same things that Saul is doing here. Because Saul looks at his situation. He looks at his circumstance. Samuel doesn't show up when he needs him to. He doesn't show up in the appointed time. And he does what the scripture calls leans on his own understanding, meaning like he uses his own kind of reasoning and his own logic. And Samuel just shows up and he's like, what have you done? It's a question that comes out in the scripture quite a bit. When God comes to Eve in the garden after she disobeys, after she rebels against God, he says, what have you, what have you done? When God comes to Cain, who has killed his brother Abel, he says, what have, what have you done? And, and Joshua, when Achan steals and hides and lies, the word to him is, what, what have you done? And, and Saul does what so often we do. There is a kind of a self-justification. In verse 11, he says, well, listen, the numbers were dwindling. My resources were dwindling. Opportunity was fading Certain death was coming my way, and you didn't show up when you were supposed to show up, and I needed this to be done. This had to happen, and so I, I thought, I reasoned, the, the Philistines are going to come attack me, and, and I haven't garnered the favor of the, of the Lord. So he disobeys the Lord in order to get the favor of the Lord over him in this battle. And he's saying, look, if you just knew the circumstances or in light of the circumstances, my kids do this to me all the time. Why are we eating on the couch in the living room? Well, we've talked about this. This is not a thing to do. Well, dad, that chocolate ice cream is there and I want it. They justify why it has to happen. Plus, Silas was asking for it. What am I supposed to do? Just not give him the ice cream and not sit here and eat it with him? That's a silly example but we do that kind of stuff all the time. Why, why did you cut those corners at work? Why did, you, uh, why did you take or why were you dishonest? Or why, why did you gossip or slander or lie about that person? Why, why did you overspend? Why did you, why did, why, well, if you knew the circumstances, if you knew what was surrounding it, and that's exactly what Saul does here, and Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly. 
Because the word was clear, wait until I show up and show you what to do. Now, we, now we, can, we can look at this and be like, I think, you know, Samuel's probably being a little bit too harsh on Saul. I mean, you, I can see where Saul's coming from. The army, his army is dwindling. The Philistine army is massive. Samuel was supposed to show up at a certain time. He didn't. The sacrifice has to be done but the partial obedience is full disobedience. What we're seeing here is really what's a, like a massive challenge in our, in our own life. This is the challenge in this passage. It's the challenge in, in a life of following God. Trusting God against all odds, trusting God in every circumstance, trusting God in the face of massive opposition, trusting God in light of dwindling resources, trusting God when everything is stacked against you, trusting God when you feel like, I could, I could make this happen, I could just do this on my own power, even though God has said no, even though God has said wait, even God, though God has said not like that, but I could so easily just do that and it would make things better. And, and God, I don't feel like you understand the circumstances. We're like Saul when Samuel shows up. Hey, God, listen, if you were really here, if you were really paying attention to what was happening in my marriage, if you were really paying attention to what was happening at my job, if you were really paying attention to what's happening at school, God, if you were really paying attention... If you knew my circumstances, you would understand and know why I have to do this thing or act this way, even though, yes, technically it's disobeying, but you don't understand the circumstances. And what Saul does here is he sets his heart and his mind against the clear command of God. And Samuel says, you've done a really foolish thing. Verse 13, you've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And if you had, if you had, if you had trusted him, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sat, sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And, and listen, I know it can be kind of annoying for someone to stand up here and say, so there you go. Just trust and obey. Go do it. Because it's not simple. It's often complicated. And here in Saul's life and in your life and in my life, trusting God's commands and obeying completely is complicated. Turn over to chapter 14, and we're gonna, I'm just going to kind of work through this chapter and kind of paraphrase it, and then we'll tie this all together, hopefully, at the end. So at the beginning of chapter 14, Saul's forces are a, a, a mess after his failure of faith and after um, him deciding that he's better off to do it his own way, it opens uh, a little bit different. It opens with, uh, in verse 1 and in verse 6, there's Jonathan, who's the son of Saul. He's on the scene again, and he's there with his armor bearer. And um, Jonathan is an amazing character, and he says to his armor bearer, he's like, come on, let's go after these Philistines. Let, let's, go, let's go get them. 
verse 2 is kind of like this inverse of that where you see Saul. It's like if you're watching a movie, you'd see Jonathan and the armor bearer who are like, let's go. Just me and you. Let's go take on this army. And then you see Saul, you cut the Saul, and the scripture says he's hiding under a pomegranate cave. He's like chilling under a a tree, and he's kind of gathered around him some priests and some kind of like malcontents. Uh, He just does not have like a great kind of group of guys around him. So you see Saul sitting and kind of hiding and Jonathan getting ready to kind of launch out. And then in verse six, this is amazing. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. He's basically saying like, they're not the covenant people of God. They're not like us. Let's go against them. And he, and he, and he said, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Okay. It's may be. It's just Jonathan and the armor bearer. Not like, hey, let's take 300 guys with us and fight against the thousands. No, it's just Jonathan and his armor bearer. And Jonathan says, I got a great idea. Let's go get him. Now, here's something else to keep in mind. Uh, scholars will say, and the scripture backs this up, that the army of God, that the Israel army did not have great weapons or armor. Uh, What the Philistines had done is they kind of taken over all of the blacksmiths uh, kind of around there. And in fact, a lot of the Israelites had to fight with either, uh, they had had very low technology in their weapons. They didn't have the same kind of metal. They didn't have the same kind of armor, same kind of sword, same kind of spears. And a lot of them were also fighting with kind of like farming implements. So they had like rakes and shovels and stuff like that. So, which by the way, they also had to get their tools sharpened by the Philistines, and the Philistines would charge like this like crazy amount of money for them to even sharpen their tools so that they could work. So Jonathan and his dad Saul are like the only two guys in the in the Israel's army who have like actual decent weapons, decent swords and spears. So Jonathan is there with this armor bearer, and he says, Let's go, let's go get those guys. It may be. Okay, so one, it's just me and you. And then he says, maybe, maybe God will, maybe God will give us a, a victory there. What immediately gets pointed out here is he's saying God may do this, although God doesn't have to do this, but it is a possibility. Let's go. Now, what Jonathan is showing us here with his armor bearer is a picture of a life of faith. God is good, and he's right in everything that he does. So let's do what he says and trust him with the outcome and bless his name. Let's go. You see this in Jesus. Jesus in the garden when he's praying, Father, I know all things are possible with you. I know, that, I know that you can do anything, but not my will, but yours be done. What Jonathan is showing us here is that perhaps is part of our theology. It may be. That means it's possible that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many 
or by few. That's what Jonathan says there. That's, that's the certainty. It may be, but God can do anything. The, the Lord can do anything. Jonathan is allowing God to be God, Tim Chester says. God is sovereign, and he will save if he chooses. That's Jonathan's position as he looks over at his armor bearer. He said, let's go fight these guys. Even though perhaps is part of the equation, even though it, 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 it may be, Jonathan is absolutely certain of at least one thing. There's nothing that can stop God from saving. He can save by many or he can save by few because he's God and he can do anything. Maybe he'll do it now. Maybe he'll do it again. Jonathan, no, no doubt, would have been holding in his mind the story of Gideon. If you're not familiar with that story, Gideon gathers an army. God whittles it down, whittles it down, whittles it down to about 300 and it's not like, hey, we need 300 special ops, Delta Force guys. It's just 300. And the point is, God takes it down to that number so that everyone who sees what they do will say, well, that's clearly God. There's no other way that that could have happened except for God. Because nothing can hinder God from saving by many or by few. He may choose to do this. That's the possibility that's the possibility that we, that we walk through this life in trusting God, following God. That question, God, you may save. God, you may deliver. You may heal. You are able and capable. That's the certainty. God, you might, you may, it may be, it may be that this thing works out in a certain way, but you can you can do anything. And I'm going to walk in that faith in obedience to what you've called me to do in my life. It's a heart that says, God, you can do anything. And you might do this one thing. But whatever the outcome, I'm going to bless your name. It's an amazing contrast that we're, that we're seeing here. Because you've got all these people who are kind of hiding in holes and hiding in cisterns and jugs and rocks and caves and then you just got Jonathan and his armor bearer, and you're like, let's go fight those guys. And in fact, in, in verse 7, the armor bearer doesn't get enough credit, in my opinion, because he says to Jonathan, he says, do all that is in your heart and do whatever you wish because I'm with you, heart and soul. The literal translation means he, he looks at Jonathan. Jonathan says, let's go fight those guys. It may be that God will, will deliver us because God can, God can do anything. The armor bearer says, that's a great speech. I love that. I'm with you literally like your heart is with you. That's what that phrase means. I'm with you heart and soul. I'm with, I'm with like the same way your heart's beating in you. It's that close to you. He's like, I'm, I'm there. I am with you. It, it, it's, this is a kind of a passing point, but it is a great reminder of the importance of others around us, right? It's an, it's an incredible reminder of the kind of people that we are to be for one another. If we were a church, if we were a, a family of faith, if we were a community and where one of us had a call of God on our lives to go do a particular thing, and yes, it's crazy, but God has spoken clearly, and it's a step of faith, it's a step of obedience, and, and you can lock arms with one another and just say, hey, 
whatever God has told you, I am, I'm with you. I'm with you like your heart is with you. That's what Jonathan has here in the armor bearer. So Jonathan, here's their, their plan. He's like, okay, we're going to go over there and we're going to mess with those guys. And uh, so Jonathan, the armor bearer, kind of had the low ground and the Philistines were kind of up on top of this kind of rocky, kind of slippery hill. And Jonathan says, okay, we're going to go over there and we're going to holler at them. And if they will either come down to where we are and they'll lose the high ground and lose the tactical advantage, that'll be good for us. Or they'll call us up to them. And if they call us up to them, Jonathan figures, he's like, it's probably because they don't really have any heart to fight us. They're wore out or they're really kind of not interested. So they go over there. The Philistines make fun of them. They're like, why don't you guys come up here? We'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan looks at the arm bear. He's like, oh, it's on. Let's go. And so they have to scale, the scripture says, they have to scale hand and, and, and feet. So they're like on their hands and knees, climbing up this kind of rocky crag. In fact, the, the Hebrew uh, word to describe the two sides of this hill are slippery and thorny. It's what the Hebrew words mean that describe the, the hill. So they are kind of, they're working their way up. And the whole way they're working their way up, the Philistines are making fun of them. They're punking them the whole way up. They get up there. Uh, it's actually very interesting because it's like they have to ascend up and then they do like a slight descent. And, and scholars say that this rock formation, it looked like, it looked like a pair of jaws. And so it's as if Jonathan and the armor bearer are scaling up and then like entering into like the jaws of death where these Philistines are. And they descend on them and they lay an absolute whooping on these dudes. And, and the Philistines... They, they run away from there, and Saul, who's chilling under the, the pomegranate, there's a little earthquake that God sends in this, in this moment just to kind of flex on these guys a little bit. They see what's happening, and Saul's like, let's go. Let's get in the fight. The scripture says that the, there's so much kind of confusion in the Philistine army that they actually start fighting themselves, and most scholars think what had happened is there were defectors from, the, uh, from Israel who had joined the Philistines. And so when they joined the Philistine army, they gave them Philistine armor and weapons. And they start to see that the Philistines are on the run. So these defectors, they turn on the other Philistines. And then all the guys who are kind of like hidden in the rocks and hidden in the caves and hidden in the jugs, they all kind of come out. And so there's just this massive, massive battle, massive fight. And it's just complete madness. Um, and God is victorious. And in fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 23, this is the whole point of the story. The scripture says this, so on that day, the Lord saved Israel. That's the point of the story. I mean, you could read this and you could look at it and you're like, okay, well, I, I see clearly what the point is supposed to be. Don't be like Saul, be a Jonathan, go charge it. God's given you something to do, go. We should all leave here and be Jonathan's. And that's great. And if God has given you something to do, and God has put a call on your life, and you need to be obedient, that's right. It's, it would be way better to be a Jonathan and active in what God's given you to do than to be a Saul and sitting and hiding. But the point of the story is wider and broader and bigger and better than just go be a Jonathan. The point is that the Lord saved Israel. Israel. 
it's the point that Jonathan is holding when he says it's, it's impossible to stop God. He, he can win, he can save by many or by few. And here's the mystery, that he chooses to use Jonathan and his armor bearer to make the point that in their poverty, in their lacking, in their everything is stacked against them, God allows them to become a vessel of his triumph and his victory. And that's the prayer for us. That's what we are to draw out of this. That's the hope and, the, and what we're asking God for as a church, that we're not a people who are resting on our power, our platform, our position, or our possessions, but we realize our own poverty. We realize our own lacking, and we are humbly taking ground against strongholds in this world for the glory and the fame of God. And all the while, we know and we demonstrate it's God's power to save and God's power alone. That's what we draw from the story. Now, no doubt, Jonathan is a good example of courage and faith, but Jonathan, like so many in the Scripture, are a signpost appointing us ultimately to King Jesus. When we look at Jonathan and we see what Jonathan does entering the jaws of death, being obedient, being full of faith, we're to look at him and say, who does that remind me of? Ah, Jesus. That's what I see. That's who I see when I see Jonathan. Solomon, who's a king that we're going to see later on, he would tell his son one day, he would say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him, God, and he will direct your path. He's saying, trust God with all your heart, because the heart in the Bible is the epicenter of who we are and what we are. It involves our minds, our emotions, and our wills. And so when Solomon says to his son and to us through the wisdom literature, trust God with all your heart, it is to display a deep, settled confidence in God's care, a deep, settled confidence at the very core of my life. The, the, the place in my life where all my desires sit and the place in my life where all my anxieties sit, the place in my life where the doubts and disappointments sit, and all the things in my life that clamor for my attention, all the things that, all the things that cause us to say, well, if you knew the circumstances, you know why I was dishonest in that business deal. You know why I had to have that affair. If you knew the circumstances... That's the place. So you make those decisions out of your heart. And what the wisdom writer is saying, hey, in all your ways, with your, with your heart, don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in God, and he will direct, he will direct your steps. Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What the psalmist is saying there is like when you live and act like there is no God, you're a fool. And in our partial obedience, it's foolishness. Saul's greatest folly is that he acted like God wouldn't act. The reason why Jonathan and the armor bearer are, are the heroes in this story is because they knew with certainty God 
can act. I just have to be obedient. God, God can act. Perhaps it may be, but I have to be obedient. Saul's folly is expressed in his disobedience, which is why Samuel comes to him and says, you've done foolishly. You're a fool. And because of that, your, your kingdom's over. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul picks up on Romans 1. He, he's describing in the way in which God reveals himself in creation and in the conscience of man, and he describes what happens when under the guise of being really wise, men and women become foolish. What the Apostle Paul is saying, what the Scripture's pointing to is, look, it's, it's not that there's a darkness outside of you, it's that there's a darkness in you, at the very core of your being. The fool is someone who lives as though God does not exist or that God doesn't matter and God's ways don't matter and the obedience and trusting and faith doesn't matter. The scripture says that person is a fool. And what happened to Saul in this story and in his circumstances uh, that he finally said, look, it just matters more to me that I take action for me and mine and what's wise in my eyes more than I obey God. And the result for Saul, your kingdom's done. Because only a king that obeys God can rule Israel. And he says, God has, God has a man after his own heart, meaning like God had set in his heart David, who we're going to see in a little bit, but ultimately he sees his son, Jesus. The band's going to come up. We're going to close now. We enter into this time of communion like we do every week here. It's important when we're looking at these stories that we're letting the Bible do what it does and always point us and always push us forward to Jesus, the obedient king. The scripture says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation. And when all the circumstances appeared to be the kind of circumstances that were like, well, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. In fact, that's what Jesus says. If it's possible, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, I am the obedient king. It's the obedient king who, unlike Saul, calls us to his side he, he is gentle and lowly in heart. He's not rude. He's decisive. He's powerful. He's God. We want to listen to those promises of being welcomed by that king. Uh, so often when we come to this moment of communion, and especially, again, when we're staring into a character like Saul and we're, we're confronted with our lack of obedience or we're confronted with our partial obedience, our full disobedience, and we come to this moment the accuser can be so loud and say, you are a fool. You've done foolish things. And it's true. And it's true. And the enemy wants to steal this moment of grace. But communion is so powerful. It's not just like something we do every week because we don't have a better idea for programming. It's it's a powerful reminder for us. It's why Jesus said, do this in remembrance. Because it's a moment where you take the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus, 
and you hold it in your hand and you, you taste it. And it's a response every week to the voice of the accuser who says, you're a fool and you've done foolish things. It's a response that says, yes, I have. But there is an obedient king who has taken on all of my rebellion. An obedient king who's taken on all of my folly and all of my foolishness. There's an obedient king who's taken on all of my, I'm going to go my own way, and all of my guilt and all of my punishment and all of my sin, even though he did none of those things, but he took them all on in his own body, on his own cross. And communion every week is a confession that my faith and my future depends and it rests on the strength of his obedience and his sacrifice, not mine. And the fact that he was not like Saul when the chips were down. And the fact that Jesus is a better and more perfect Jonathan who ascended the hill of Calvary and into the jaws of death to conquer one time for all time Satan sin and death and who brought us victory that he purchased with his own life and his own death in perfect obedience to his father he climbed the hill of Calvary to defeat our enemy and bring us into his victory it's true we are more like Saul in his fear and in his failures than we probably care to admit but because of Jesus who ascended the hill to his cross, who has defeated Satan's sin and death. We no longer walk in that fear. We no longer walk in that failure. But we walk in faith, following our King Jesus, who's always faithful. If you're a Christian here this morning, eat and drink in remembrance and in celebration of our faithful King Jesus.